when people travel as as we when we travel they put on their best clothes and very fre frequently uh, their best shoes which may not unfortunately be the best uh, choice under the circumstances uh, there was one um, individual he came into the refugee center very late at night he came on the late train uh, from Kiev and he was wearing really nice shoes. And I noticed the shoes before I noticed him and got to talk to him, but they were really gorgeous. And only later, a couple of days later, it dawned on me that he put on his best dress shoes. Well, unfortunately for him, he was traveling for something like three days. And when he came, the first thing he asked for was if he could get some slippers because his feet were killing him. And uh, it was, it was, it was, it was very sad because this was somebody who didn't know if he was ever going to come home again. And he just took what was most, what was the nicest thing he had. Today we're talking about Ukraine and we have with us Vita Zeltzer. Vita is an attorney with Kilpatrick, Townsend and Stockton in Atlanta, Georgia. She was born in Ukraine and since the outbreak of the war has provided legal and other assistance to many who have fled, both in the United States and in Poland. For three months this summer, Vita served as Vecina's pro bono legal fellow and worked on issues related to Ukraine. Vita, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. So tell us about your connection to Ukraine and how you got involved in the, the crisis there. I was born uh, in Ukraine during the Soviet period and immigrated to the US with my parents and grandparents. And then we had extended family that came along um, as well. Some were already here and some came after us. And my husband has a similar biography. He's from Ukraine as well. And we speak Russian at home. Our kids speak Russian now. They were all born in the US. Vita joined Vecina actually as the pro bono legal fellow um, for a period of about three months, which was so awesome. And we're not going to get too into her legal work, although we are going to discuss legal issues in a few minutes. But um, right now I want to focus on your time in Poland. Um, so, okay, so why, why that particular border city in Poland? Was it because you all, you mentioned that you had some friends that had gone. Was that the main connection? That was the main connection to that place. Przemysl, um, Poland is a border town. It's right across the border from Ukraine. And it is it contains a couple of key uh, points of interest that had made it the inadvertent refugee crisis epicenter or one of them um, of that part of the world. There's a train station there that has multiple trains a day that come in directly from uh, Lviv and Kiev and then from Odessa and they have become the main evacuation routes by train. And in uh, this wasn't the case when we were there in June, but in the early months of the war, uh, there's a uh, pedestrian border crossing at, called Medica, it's in a little village that was uh, one of the key um, pedestrian border crossings from Ukraine that was actually absolutely flooded with refugees fleeing. And that's right out outside, outside of Przemysl. Um, so we knew we, we wanted to go uh, somewhere fairly close to the border because that's where there was most work. It actually wasn't apparent uh, until very shortly before we left where the greatest need would be. So my husband was constantly in contact. He identified several opportunities um, for volunteer organizations that would have us, but it was it wasn't until a couple of days before we left that it was obvious who had the greatest need at that time. And it turned out to be um, in the uh, border town of Przemysl, and he identified 
uh, through connections made uh, through our friends that had gone previously, an organization called Russians for Ukraine, uh, which is an organization with a very provocative name. Uh, it's a grassroots group that was founded uh, several days after the start of the war, really came together somewhat spontaneously by a number of like-minded individuals that were uh, Russian citizens that had found themselves in Poland for various reasons that had either left before the war intentionally or were on holiday um, or left and eventually in protest left Russia uh, and were spending their days and their nights helping Ukrainian refugees at the border. And there was definitely a need for Russian, uh, certainly Ukrainian speaking as well, but Russian speaking uh, assistance. And that group filled that need. Uh, they had rented a house uh, in Medica, so right next to the pedestrian border crossing. And in the first couple of um, months of the war, that's where a lot of the um, assistance was needed. When the pedestrian traffic through the border crossing slowed down, a lot of uh, the work was at the train station. So the group um, organized themselves as staffing uh, two shifts for the train station. It was a morning shift to greet the morning trains and then an evening shift for the evening trains. And uh, there was a lot of work there and also not a lot of other volunteers groups working there. So there was a, a, a tremendous need. There was also a refugee center in town. It was a, a vacant mall that had been repurposed to basically like a little miniature city where people lived and got medical treatment and other forms of assistance. And the um, RFU, Russians for Ukraine, the group that we joined provided uh, 24 seven support to so two shifts uh, a day shift and a night shift for various uh, needs of the refugee center. And they um, they had kind of a core group of people that had um, had made it their, um, their, their full-time plus, let's say, uh, vocation to help refugees in this capacity. But then they also hosted people like us that were Russian speakers from various parts of the former Soviet sphere that lived abroad uh, U.S. Uh, or or Canada or Ireland or Israel or you name it. So part of the kind of the the, the Soviet um, immigrant uh, network around the world uh, that would come in for uh, one week, two weeks, three weeks, fill in the blank uh, to help volunteer and use this group as the launching pad to help uh, be most effective in their efforts. Got it. So tell me about your experience there and what it looked like from your eyes. Can you paint a picture for us of what you were seeing? So I was there, I ended up being there for about two and a half weeks with my daughter. Uh, one of those weeks uh, we overlapped with, with my husband and I um, split my time when I was there between uh, a couple of shifts at the refugee center and then um, multiple shifts at the train station. The, um, the train station was the place where um, I think emotions were most raw, um, help was most needed, and it was more of a triage situation of people um, coming in and out of very difficult situations and needing sometimes very rudimentary assistance, and there not really being an infrastructure to support it. I mean, to paint a picture, Shamashel is a, is a very old just gorgeous, picturesque little town. It is not, a, it's a, a quiet, sleepy town of 60,000. 
it is not a town that you would go to uh, as a tourist destination necessarily just because it's so small and out of the way. It doesn't have tourist infrastructure for tourism. It doesn't have lots and lots of hotels. It doesn't have Uber. Uh, it doesn't have Airbnb. I mean, just not, none of these accommodations that you take for granted. Um, and the train station is uh, from the 1800s. It's beautiful. It's ornate. It's like restored. It's kind of like an art gallery inside. And it's got three ticket windows and really was designed for, you know, an 1800s stroll or like a leisure trip or something like that, that you take your valise it was not designed for 21st century rolling suitcases. It was not designed for thousands of people going through it, not knowing where to go, not speaking the language, uh, carrying their life possessions in whatever vessel they could stuff. Um, so what the situation uh, that you have there is there's four trains a day that come in from Ukraine and they're full. And there's, I, I believe there's about 600 people per train. Um, there's four trains a day that leave, or in, that was the case when I was there. There's four trains a day that um, go back to Ukraine. And most of the people coming are refugees. And uh, the refugees are women with children or people over 60. Because men from 18 to 60, subject to some exceptions, are not permitted to leave the country. So it's a lot of, of mothers with strollers, crying babies, um, the elderly. Everyone is lugging a suitcase they can't lift. Um, rolling suitcases are, are almost useless uh, there uh, because there's a lot of, um, the, the train station doesn't have an elevator or an escalator or anything like that. And to get from each of the platforms to the train station building, there's an underground walkway. So you got to walk down a flight of stairs, then walk across and then walk up a flight of stairs to get out of the underground walkway. And you've got people with, with suitcases, uh, many of which are falling apart. They're held together with tape. Um, and, and so some of the assistance that they need is just physical manual labor of lifting a suitcase, carrying it down a flight of stairs and then carrying back up a flight of stairs. We had one family that we were helping. Um, they were actually going back into Ukraine after some time in Europe. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but they had just an absolute mountain of luggage. And I was, I'm not uh, <laughs> of such great musculature as to help people with luggage, but I was, I was standing next to someone who was, so I was just help, helping the process along generally as best I could, but they had an absolute mountain of luggage that was just immovable. And it was a mom, uh, a teenage uh, daughter and a, and a grandmother. And the, the man who was helping their luggage, he's like, what is in this? I mean, this is just, you cannot move this stuff. And it turned out to be books. They evacuated their library and it was absolutely, it was, <laughs> We had mixed feelings because it was it was quite a job to move it, but that was what they deemed to be most essential to try to evacuate. So that was a family that was actually going back into Ukraine after, and this was June. So they had spent some months in Europe and um, were just ready to go home. Um, it's, it's it's very difficult to be displaced for so long. There's you know, most people don't speak the language of whatever country they may have ended up in. Um, they just they just want to go home, kind of come what may. So the trains coming in were either refugees or people running errands. Uh, people going back were also sometimes people running errands, sometimes journalists, um, sometimes volunteers um, going in. But very frequently, people are just going back after some months in Europe. So that was the case um, in June. There was um, uh, one uh, particular um, instance was really interesting. It was, a, it was an elderly man who was going to visit his daughter who had given birth in Poland where she was um, 
to, to where she had escaped after the war broke out, but he was, he was just going to visit her in the hospital because her baby was just born and her husband was not able to leave Ukraine because he was fighting. So he was just going to say hello. And then he, he had needed, he needed to return to Ukraine to take care of, um, I believe an elderly relative that he was caring for. So a lot of, um, a lot of human tragedy of every variety and it all kind of passes through this, this small cute train station. And it's just, it's very, it's very surreal. When we were there, the weather was gorgeous. It was just pleasant to be there. And it's, it's this kind of cognitive dissonance of um, a beautiful uh, summer day and in a beautiful place, but yet it's the backdrop for so much human tragedy of every variety. Um, there, when we were there, there were um, two World Central Kitchen hubs that were operating there. One was right outside the train station, um, kind of on the on the city side, and one was right next to the um, the part of the train station where the trains to and from Ukraine were coming. So that was definitely a major lifeline for people. It was free food um, for people when they were getting off trains and completely disoriented and not knowing where they ended up or or what they were going to do next. Um, very frequently, the impediments to, to people kind of moving along their way were so um, basic and simple and easily solvable, but they just needed to be solved by someone. Like, for example, there was a, um, uh, there was a, a shuttle that ran from the train station to the pedestrian border crossing that was just, I mean, really maybe like 10, 20 minutes away uh, by shuttle. The shuttle cost uh, five zloty, which is like $1.20 but it had to be paid in cash. And the people coming in didn't have, um, sometimes people were coming in from Europe and needed to, um, from deeper into Europe rather, and needed to um, needed to, to somehow get to the border and there was delay with the trains or the trains were sold out or people were, um, anyway, for, for whatever reason, people needed to use that shuttle, but didn't have money in the correct currency. And the, the currency exchange uh, windows only open from certain hours and two certain hours and um, that you're not going to exchange uh, you know hundred dollars to get a dollar 20 or something like that so and the ATM card wouldn't work in the ATM machine so all kinds of all kinds of small um, seemingly small but but really seminal uh, um, problems would arise there so do you think I mean when when you were saying that many returned to Ukraine after just being displaced for so many months, it sounds like in many ways, what you're saying is people could not move on to, to settle somewhere, at least temporarily, but more temporarily than in a train station or in this small town due to largely what, what things that we take for granted. So things that we would deem small, like exchange rates, uh, or exchanging money, or, you know, even just with like transportation issues, is that or is there sort of a bigger picture in terms of people's impediments to people being able to find a place to sort of settle until it's until it's really safe to return home? It's in some levels it's difficult to generalize because everyone's situation is so unique and everyone's um, personal circumstances are complex in um, in their own ways. For many, it was difficult to be separated from the husbands and the fathers. So it was, it was moms with kids in country A, fathers back in Ukraine. And they and when they had left, it was a matter of, you know, it seemed like it would just be a couple of days or a couple of weeks and they would be reunited. But now we're moving into month you know, three, four, fill in the blank. And um, 
it was becoming apparent that this is this is a long situation. And so they, they should accept um, they should accept it as such as opposed to try to find it some, some kind of temporary um, temporary solution. For many, um, it was feeling out of place in a different country that they never intended to get to. They just got there uh, by, by circumstance because that was the best option when they were trying to flee. So there's there's a lot of um, a lot of personal complexity there. Um, in, in some instances, aid was slowly beginning to uh, to dry up in, in some certain places and for people who are trying to rely um, on public assistance because they can't work either due to a language barrier or a child care issue or some or a health care issue. That was also an issue as well. Um, so it's 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 a lot of things that we take take for granted and the kind of stability of society that we take for granted when uh, the, the literal you know, rug's been pulled out of an entire civilization, really. Um, it's, it's the, uh, the, the, um, the human tragedy that results. And a, a, a lot of the, a lot of the people fleeing are, for example, people from very small villages that have never really traveled before. They may not have even been further than the nearest large town in their area. And all of a the sudden they're finding themselves in a foreign country, the, the, where everyone speaks a foreign language and where the, the money's different and everything's different. And they're being asked if they wanna move to Ireland or to Finland. Like, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an impossible situation with no right answer. And so it's not surprising that um, it, it doesn't necessarily you know, work out as a long-term solution, even though it was a lifesaver on a short term. I want to sort of shift now and talk about the global response from a migration perspective and the U.S.'s sort of role in that global response. You mentioned to me in another conversation about the fact that um, at least in the early days, that representatives from different countries would be either at the refugee center or the train station available to talk to people about their options to immigrate to a particular country, either temporarily or permanently based on their circumstances. Can you tell me briefly a little bit about that and also you know, whether the U.S. participated in those efforts at all? So the refugee center in town uh, in Premichel, um what served as both um, a place to spend the night and take a shower for a lot of people and get a meal and get basic uh, medical help or um, some other type of first aid, but and also a place to formulate their future plans as to what to do next. And a lot of people really had no clue, like the individuals that I mentioned may have lived their whole life in a small village or a very small town, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're being they're being asked if if, if it's France or Spain that they prefer. Um, the the refugee center had uh, desks with representatives from various countries that would describe the offerings uh, that the country would offer for the refugees and also coordinate the logistics for uh, transportation there. Um, by the time I was there, the that role had fallen to volunteers, like there were volunteers acting as representatives or providing information on behalf of several countries. The US was not represented there at Tesco, at the Refugee Center at the time. I'm not sure if it ever was. I'm presuming not because of the nature of the um, of the refugee assistance that the US is providing. The Uniting for Ukraine uh, program that was announced in April 
offers uh, Ukrainians a way to uh, travel to the U.S., but only if they have a sponsor. So an individual in the U.S., and it doesn't have to be a citizen, uh, can sponsor uh, uh, Ukrainians to come here on a temporary basis. It's a, up to two years under the humanitarian parole um, status. And there's no permanent um, option to, uh, to achieve permanent status through this program. And the need for um, having an individual sponsor plus the physical distance and the difficulty and the expense of getting to the US, I think make the US not um, uh, an immediate choice or a top choice for a lot of the refugees. Um, so it's because a lot, almost everyone I talked to, I want to say everyone I talked to was just buying time until they could go home. I mean, people just wanted to go home. And um, so the people that end up coming to the U.S. are seem to be either those who have a direct connection here, either family or close friends, or have uh, always wanted to come to the U.S. and have an opportunity to do that, even if it's on a temporary basis. Um, or um, at the moment, it seems to be that it's uh, for some it is a it is a better option now that um, a lot of the places in Europe are becoming. Um, it's more challenging to find jobs given how many people uh, have entered uh, in, into some of the towns that welcome them. So the situation is, is it's very fluid. It's changing very quickly. The rules, um, I'm not following the rules in, in the European countries, but it's, uh, it's, just, it's a challenging situation um, on many fronts. When you have such a large number of people displaced simultaneously uh, together with without a clear ending of when and how the situation will resolve. You mentioned a moment ago that the Uniting for Ukraine program, which is for Ukrainian refugees, is temporary. It's temporary legal status. So then what happens when Ukrainians get to the US? What if the war is continues to go on for many months or years? Yeah, it's definitely a question that keeps a lot of people up at night. Uh, hopefully, the U.S. government will come up with some kind of either temporary or permanent um, way to help these individuals if it becomes apparent that they're not able to go home. I mean, the, the war, it's we're now in early August. The war's been going on since end of February. So it's been um, it's it's been an ongoing um kind of slow, the, the uncertainty of it and the potential protract, protracted nature of it has been um, becoming more and more apparent. So I, I'm hopeful that the US government has some kind of way to, to help these individuals, especially given um, the fact that many of them are uh, now applying for employment authorizations because the Uniting for Ukraine program does allow um, to obtain employment here legally. And once they do obtain the right to, to get jobs and they become more integrated into society, it'll be, become all that much more difficult to have to abruptly leave, especially if there's uncertainty waiting for them on the home front. The United States recently designated Ukraine for temporary protected status. What does that do for Ukrainians? That assists those that were already here um, when war broke out and those that made it into the country by April 11th, which is the um, date that they would have had to arrive here um, to be able to 
get the benefit of that protection to continue to stay here for a period of 18 months after the designation date, which is uh, September of 2023, uh, and to have deportation protection for that period. And um, with the possibility of that being extended for an additional 18 months after that. So it's uh, the US government's way of saying we won't deport you into a war zone. And um, it also comes with a right to work, which is especially uh, beneficial for those that were here, for example, on tourist visas that would have otherwise had to uh, take some kind of action to leave the country or to um, legalize their status elsewhere. And um, so it's uh, certainly been a lifeline of many. Unfortunately, it's a closed pool of individuals because they would have had to have already been here by by April 11th, it, it is creating an interesting gap because those that came here after the TPS date, but before uniting for Ukraine would have been a possibility are in a bit of limbo. Uh, some people came into the border with Mexico and uh, received a year of humanitarian parole. So it's not clear what those individuals options will be because they don't currently have a, a path toward permanent residence. And for uniting for Ukraine beneficiaries, they came after the TPS designation day, right? So they're not eligible for TPS because they had to have been here by a certain date. So then for Uniting for Ukraine beneficiaries, they have a temporary period that maybe they could renew, but they're not going to get, they're not going to, presumably we assume going to be able to be eligible for TPS. Unless the TPS rules are revised, the Uniting for Ukraine beneficiaries cannot get TPS. So at the moment, there's several classes, if you will, of individuals. There's those who are here by April 11th, which means, however, doesn't matter how they were here, legally, illegally, visas, uh, humanitarian parole, if they were here by April 11th, they're eligible for TPS, which means they get 18 months of deportation protection with the possibility of it being extended for 18 more months thereafter. Then there's the group, and it's, um, either some visa holders or those that came in through the Mexico border and got humanitarian parole. They came in from April 12th um, onward if they came in without uniting for Ukraine uh, protection. And if they came in through the Mexico border, they, get a, they got a year of humanitarian parole. If they came in through visas, it's subject to their visa, visa terms. But then there's everyone who came on uniting for Ukraine, which was announced end of April, and they get two years of humanitarian parole and unclear what happens after that. So for everyone, really, there's still a bit of uncertainty and no um, apparent path forward, which complicates and compound, compounds on a psychological level, a situation that's already very, very much fraught. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult to know if you, you know, establish your roots here and try to uh, um, obtain a sense of permanence and normalcy, or if this is really a temporary situation. So with the war being uncertain and the legal status here being uncertain, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. <laughs> For those of us that are listening, so presumably lawyers and non-lawyers that are living primarily in the U.S., what can we do to help? Certainly um, keeping keeping in mind that the war is not over and the refugee crisis by any by any stretch is not over. Uh, there's a lots of displaced individuals 
uh, both in Europe and within Ukraine, there's people still coming in. The Przemysl trains are still going four times a day in every direction. Uh, those uh, people coming in um, need help of every kind. The organizations that are helping them, big and small, need financial support. And that's, of course, something um, anyone can do from abroad. So keeping, um, keeping awareness of this issue um, at a high level is, is, is very important and it's very critical, especially now that with a passage of time, other crises have come to, to displace uh, the Ukrainian crisis and the refugee crisis from the front pages and the, the headlines of newspapers. Financial support for organizations that are providing aid. As lawyers, there is opportunity to help. Uh, the TPS application process is something that anyone um, can learn to do with some training. And uh, there's programs out there, including uh, through Vecina, uh, where you can learn to do the TPS uh, application process. And that will be a huge benefit to folks because there's, um, um, there's a great number of folks that qualify for TPS uh, that would need help now. And should it be renewed in 18 months, it's a renewal process, which again, uh, would, would benefit from some legal assistance. So that's 18 months from now. So it'll be an ongoing need for that individual, for, for that group of, of people. The Uniting for Ukraine process is uh, designed in a way that doesn't really um, need a lot of legal intervention uh, for the most part, if things go according um, according to instructions. Uh, the edge cases though do benefit from um, some legal expertise and intervention. Uh, and then, um, uh, occasionally, uh, some individuals benefit from asylum-related uh, counseling, um, less so uh, Ukrainians, more so Russian and Belarusian dissidents that found themselves in the U.S., um, and just providing general support for people. A lot of the, uh, a good part of the job of a volunteer, even in when we were in Przemysl, was just to be the anonymous person at the train station to whom somebody would just unburden themselves knowing that they'd never see us again. And here in the U.S., there's a great number of refugees coming in uh, through Uniting for Ukraine um, now, and there's there's need for community support and uh, sometimes just being a listening ear. Vita, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate all your insight and sharing your stories and experience with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So Lindsay, Vita talked about different immigration options that are available to Ukrainians in Europe and then in the US. What options is the US offering specifically for Ukrainians? Yeah, so there's two primary pathways for Ukrainians to come to the United States in the wake of the onset of the war. And the first one is a program called Uniting for Ukraine, which is a request for fairly immediate entry into the US under something that the US calls parole. The other thing is called temporary protected status and temporary protected status is offered to specifically designated countries of which there's more than Ukraine, but Ukraine was recently designated for TPS and that's for people who are already in the United States to be temporarily protected from having to go home to Ukraine because the war makes it unsafe for them to return. And for Ukrainians, at what point do they have to have been in the United States to even qualify for this? Is this an option for people who are coming right now? 
Yeah, it's not. There are specifically designated dates where Ukrainians have to have been residing in the United States since that time, and that date has passed. And so people who are coming right now are not eligible for you uh, for TPS. And then thinking about other humanitarian options that might be um, available in the United States, we've talked a lot on other episodes of the podcast about asylum, um, which is available to people fleeing specific kinds of persecution. Is that an option for Ukrainians fleeing the war? Yeah, so there may be some Ukrainians that qualify for asylum, but our asylum laws are fairly limited and generally fleeing war in a country is not going to in and of itself qualify you for asylum. And while Uniting for Ukraine and temporary protected status are temporary, asylum allows you a pathway to permanent status. But unfortunately, at least at first glance, many Ukrainians are not going to qualify for asylum. And there's not another sort of um, easy way to get on a pathway towards permanent status at this point. It doesn't sound from what Vita was saying as if a lot of Ukrainians are looking to come to the United States. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, she mentioned two reasons that I think are important to note as one, the geographic distance, you know, the United States is, is really far from Ukraine geographically. And then also the United States requires a financial sponsor for a Ukrainian under the Uniting for Ukraine program. And so unless someone has a connection to the United States, you know, it's somewhat difficult to find a financial sponsor. But I also think something that was sort of, she mentioned and was an undercurrent of her of our discussion is that everybody just wants to go home. This is something that people thought was gonna go on for a few days or a few weeks and ended up, you know, has now continued for months. and. You know, there's this school of thought in the U.S., I think, primarily where people say, oh, everyone wants to come to the United States. And that's just simply not true. Like there's no there's no place like home. Right. And so as people think about where they're going to settle, either extremely temporarily. I mean, Vita talked about a number of people who she saw who returned to Ukraine because they just wanted to go home. And I remember very specifically, she said, come what may. You know, people just want to be at home, but even for those that are going to temporarily settle for a longer period of time, I can imagine that they just want to be close to home. Yeah. Vita talked a lot about uh, what people brought with them when they were fleeing from Ukraine. And she talked about a family that had these incredibly heavy suitcases that all the volunteers wondered, what is in these suitcases? And it turns out they were books. And that's actually something that... Um, Gloria, the speaker in our very first episode, talked about um, that she would uh, talk about in, in the context of Holocaust survivors and asking people, if you had a suitcase, what would you take with you? And I know as a person with a lot of books in her home, I can absolutely relate to like, you're leaving home for this indeterminate period of time to go, you don't even know where you're going to go and what country you're going to land up in and what language people are going to speak. And I, I know I can relate to that idea of like trying to bring some piece of home with you in, in the form of books. And I don't know, Lindsay, what would you or your family bring with you? Yeah, I mean, so my family reads a lot of our books on Kindle. So we would probably bring our Kindles and not have to deal with the heavy books, which is which is nice. But it makes me think of my nine-year-old daughter is reading a book right now called Words on Fire. And it's a historical fiction book about book smuggling in Lithuania in during the Russian occupation. And 
you know, that I'm reading that book with her and it talks a lot about how books are, you know, the birthplace of ideas and books in many ways, especially when people are being oppressed and someone's trying to take over their way of life, books are freedom, you know? And so I can certainly, it definitely made me think about, um, you know, as Vita told that story about how books can be part of our identity, they can be part of our freedom, they can be preservation of our language, especially Jenny, as you and I were talking before we hit record, you know, finding English language books around the world can is going to be much easier than finding Ukrainian language books around the world. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, what your family might bring reminds me too of a really something very important that Vita touched on, which was the separation of families here. And this is something that maybe reading news reports isn't really something that gets brought up a lot in the context of people leaving Ukraine, but it's something Vita talked about. And so why is it that families are being separated in this context? And what does that mean for people? Yeah, so Ukraine is not allowing conscription age men, so I believe it's the ages of 18 to 60, they're not allowing men of that age largely to leave the country at all. They, they have to stay in Ukraine in order to fight for Ukraine. And so as Vita mentioned, you're seeing women and children fleeing and they're being separated from their conscription age male relatives. And so another huge part about wanting to go home is that oftentimes they're they're separated from their family members. And it, it is interesting that we have not seen as much of that in the news as we have, for example, at the southern border. Now, of course, at the southern border, you know, the context was very different, um, but, but it is something that's happening en masse, um, you know, and is another of the thousand reasons why people just want to go home. So this war has been going on for a lot, for a long time a lot longer than a lot of people thought, and there's really no end in sight at the moment. What does that mean in terms of the aid that's available to people? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me is Vita mentioning that the aid in many places is drying up. Um, and in other conversations that didn't end up in the recording, we talked about also the concept of, you know, compassion fatigue. I mean, people can't leave their work and their job, you know, for months on end largely to come and help. Um, and then of course, monetarily, you know, there can be an infusion of money to support all of these services that eventually sort of dwindles. Um, and, you know, it's, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about some of the disparities between specifically between Ukrainians and Afghans, but it's interesting in the context of this to just remember that you know, no population is immune from aid drying up, aid dwindling down. Um, and so as I think about you know, the advice she gave at the end on what can I do and how can I help is that one of the biggest things we can do is just make sure that the people in our communities remember that this is still going on and that we all in our own viable way you know, chip in and assist vulnerable communities that are displaced around the world. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast 
To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.